0: Are you interested in becoming a professor or working in academia? Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kiki. And I'm Kemi. And you're listening to Your Advisors Will See You Now, a podcast that will help you to figure out all of your options for life after high school. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Your Advisors. We'll see you now. And we are in our career chats where we uh, interview someone in a different kind of career field. And today we're interviewing our dear friend, Chelsea, who we've known for ooh over a decade. And I don't want to. want to date ourselves. <laughs> I don't want to date ourselves. But we have Chelsea on today, and she's going to uh, discuss with us how she got in, how she became a professor, um, how she got into this, how her, her interest stirred up into this position, all the good, the pros, the cons, and what a day in the life looks like. So, Chelsea, welcome to our podcast. If you could, thank please you for having just... me. Yeah, well, thank you for coming if you could please just introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about you and your background.
1: Yeah, for sure. So my name is Chelsea Yarborough, or officially the Reverend Dr. Chelsea Brooke Yarborough. So lots of degrees in there. (laughs) Uh, And my title right now is the Assistant Professor of African American Preaching, Sacred Rhetoric, and Black Practical Theology at Phillips Theological Seminary. So I spend most of my time um, teaching and writing and researching, which is a lot of fun for me. I'll talk a bit about my educational background and kind of Mm -hmm. how I got here and then we can go from there. So I got my bachelor's degree from Elon University, which is where I met these two brilliant humans. And I got my degree in political science and leadership studies, which is always a surprise for people because it's a bit far from what I'm doing now. But I think what it taught me was how to think well and how to really just be curious about what was going on in the world. When I left Elon, I thought I was headed to law school, but I made a pivot and went and got my master's of divinity from Wake Forest University School of Divinity, where I really developed as a pastor and preacher, but ended up finding some questions that I still had um, curiosities about and wanted the answer to. And so under some good mentorship, applied to PhD programs and ended up um, getting my PhD in religion from Vanderbilt University, where my focus was on preaching and worship. And so that's kind of the short, shorthand of my trajectory to how I became um, and got to doing what I'm doing. Yeah, that's amazing. Wait,
2: so you like just kind of came out of academia or sorry, out of your education. How long ago was that like last year or was it 20? Yeah. So I
1: finished my PhD in 2021. So yeah. So not only a couple of years back. So it's a lot of a uh, lot of school <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: but a lot of life experience
1: too but a lot of school
2: so yeah absolutely. I mean so I guess I feel like you kind of just gave us like everything we needed to know about like the the background part can you can you talk about like what made you want to become a professor like what point or like what stage in your education you were you know drawn to education or like teaching and things like that
1: Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because I feel like in retrospect, it makes so much more sense than it made going through it. And I think Mm -hmm. that's sometimes helpful to say, because sometimes the skills you don't even know you're developing really come together in a way that's like surprising. I didn't know that I wanted to be a professor really until I was getting my PhD. And I was, I found that the classroom was the space where so many of my other skill sets, my real love for community life my I love to see people learn and develop, but also really love to teach public speaking, where they kind of all collided in this one space. And so I think what helped me along the way was giving myself chances to have different types of leadership experiences. Um in undergrad, I had a lot of different leadership experiences, both in faith environments and non-faith environments. During my master's of Divinity program, I helped to plan a lot of worship, and I was preaching a lot. And so I just i get i was able to. Engage in a lot of communities that helped to shape my trajectory towards being a professor, and so I think that the time when I realized, like, oh, the thing that I want to do is teach. Like, what I what I want to do is to basically be a lifelong student. And how do you do that? You go into academia mm-hmm. so that you can study all the time, learn what you want to learn, and then teach others um, so that they can go off and do what it is that they want to do. And so it was somewhere at the end of my master's program that I realized that's exactly what I wanted to do. But as I look back, I was kind of being led along the way towards mm-hmm. this teaching space.
2: i have a follow up question or I'll ask the next question too. So what are some characteristics like you named a lot of things like you named leadership and communication skills, but if there's someone listening who is, you know, maybe has a desire, they wanted to be a professor one day. What are some mm-hmm. characteristics of things that colleges look for when you're applying to be a professor? I know you did like a lot of, you know, writing as well, too. So I'm sure that's going to be part of your answer, but other things that you need to have when you're applying to these jobs.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll start where you ended is writing skills are really important. And there's a part of me that when I got to my PhD, that was like, man, I really wish I had taken advantage of those writing centers in undergrad, (laughs) all these other spaces that I had been in because what I realized is that uh, my I'm very good at creating ideas, mm-hmm. but the like grammar and the like construction and that was a learned skill for me. And so it's interesting because sometimes when people talk about, oh, like, you know, you're a professor, you write, you must be such a good writer, is we forget that writing is a skill, mm-hmm. which means it's something that we can learn. And so I do think that I really am curious. I genuinely love questions. I genuinely am like, love rabbit holes but the actual skill of writing was a learned one for me and when i read some of my earlier papers i'm like whoa (laughs) we were it wasn't giving subject verb agreement (laughs) but it's something that has developed over time and so I, i name that as if someone doesn't feel like they're a strong writer don't let that deter you because it's a skill that you can learn i will say that being a professor there's an interesting balance between alone time and being in front of a public and so having some level of people skills is important because you're going to be in the classroom. You also do a lot with faculty members. Um, folks don't talk about faculty life a lot, mm. but there's a lot of committed- committees. There's institutional yes. work you have to do. Oh, we love a committee. My God. Um, and also just the, a part of being faculty is sometimes you're around a bunch of people with a lot of egos. And so mm. having to navigate that and yeah. know what it means to be a good colleague, um, you don't When people think about being a, you know, a scholar, folks see people in the library and by themselves, but you Mm. can't just be by yourself if you plan on having a job (laughs) in an institution. And so it's a balance between solitude and the public. And so I think that um, folks who know how to kind of be at their own pace and who can learn the skill of. Um, Pacing themselves through projects while also collaborating. It's that both and. Another skill that I think is really important in being a professor is public speaking. People don't think about teaching as a place of public speaking and public speaking is one of the top fears for people. Um, But it is a place of public speaking. So developing how you speak in public and how you teach others. One of my colleagues told us a story about how she used to always like make her cousins sit and learn from her. And now she's like, yeah, of course I did. Like, this is what I was going to do. And I was like, not you creating classrooms. I was not like that. I was not living my life. And so like I didn't have the I don't have the perfect story of showing up, but I have always been talking. And so that is a really helpful skill. And then the last one that I'll just name um, is research. Research is a skill. It's one that we really develop across time, even if it's not called that. All research is, is investigating a question. And so the skill of knowing how to find things, where to go in the library, how to use journal articles, those are all really important um, skills for being a professor because you have to balance your writing, your research, and your teaching. Um, And sometimes you have to be able to research a little quickly. And so knowing... How to like get into the li- How to get into the stacks? I spend a lot of time in the library. Um, is a really important kind of practice. And so, however early you can get into those stacks and start to play around and get to know some librarians, they'll be your hashtag what best friend. <laughs> get to know some librarians. It really can support you in your work towards being um, a professor, which is also being a scholar.
0: Yeah, I'm very happy that you touched on research because I was going to bring that into. I think a lot of people. When they think of a quote-unquote professor, they just see the person that's in front of the classroom teaching, and they don't understand that they have a, there's a whole level of research that's behind it. Because, um, like going off of even Kiki's question of what are some things that universities look for when they're hiring a person. I was on some of these um, search committees for, Ooh. for hiring faculty. And I had so much insight as to, wow, I was like, so you guys have to make all these, you have to write proposals to get a grant to be able to do research. So there's a lot of that writing and there's a lot of research And some institutions, no matter where you work at, they want you to have a certain amount of published articles and published works. Oh, and absolutely. I don't think, a, and I don't think a lot of people understand that that's also going on in the background for professors versus just them creating a curriculum and trying to teach you in front of the classroom. And they think, some students think that that's it. That's, that's the mm-hmm. world. That's how you are. You're paid Whoa. to teach them. But they don't see that other aspect of there's a lot of research that goes into this. And if you're a person that doesn't really like reading or enjoying trying to problem solve, or like you said, trying to um, ask a question and dig deep into it, I think... You need to know that now before you
3: go yeah, into yeah.
0: it, yeah. And, like even looking at some of the resumes when it came to professors is so funny. Cause I would look at them like, wow, look at this, this published work, this looks great. This looks great. And then talking to some other colleagues like, oh, they got this published at this place that was like an A tier or a B tier. I was like, oh, there's ranks We're snooty on that. Like I didn't know, I had no idea that that was the kind of caliber of research and I'm like oh, don't shouldn't we just be thankful that they're putting in the time because not everybody likes doing that everybody likes yeah. a google and that's it mm-hmm. but, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um so, yeah. but yeah can you speak to kind of I know you said about writing and research but um can you li- kind of list out the percentage of most you you creating curriculum and teaching and percentage of research
1: yeah no that's a great question so I as now that I'm on the other side of the of being a professor. So I guess I've been teaching more formally for about six years now. Is not on the side. I feel bad for every email I sent asking for my grade, <laughs> thinking like, right, aren't you just waiting for aren't you just waiting for me to email you so you can attend to me? <laughs> attend yep. to me. And it's like I, I was the biggest ignorer of office hours. I was like, I feel like that's a suggestion for everybody <laughs> else. <laughs> mm-hmm. and this is what is it's best for me to meet. And now that I am a professor, I'm like, no you might want to hit these office hours out because this is what I have have carved out Mm -hmm. for classroom stuff. And so the percentage, um, you know, I'm going to say this. One thing about being a professor is that so much of your life is self-paced. And there's a gift to that because you can kind of, you know, craft your time. And there's also a challenge to that because you're really having to carve out your time. And so I say that because... The percentage of what fits where really changes season to season for me so like for me summertime is high it's almost it's almost solely um writing and research Mm -hmm. and then somewhere in mid-july i'll start to pivot towards the classroom what am i doing in the fall things of that sort but when you get into the fall and the active semesters about 60% of the time is going to be teaching and curriculum and syllabi construction and feedback and engaging with students. And so that short, it squishes the amount of time that I have for writing and research. Um, And just like a part of research is being able to like go into rabbit holes and just like, wonder about. But you can't just be out here <laughs> pencil rolling through the the library when, you know, you have grades to do and things of that sort. So learning how to balance that time is a continued work in progress for me. And I know a lot of my colleagues as well. Um, so I don't think it's a perfect percentage. But what I will say is that finding time for research and writing, which are two different parts of the practice, they're all mm-hmm. under scholarship, but also finding time to look for journals to publish in, and to because every journal you apply to doesn't accept your article. And so, um, to your point, Kemi, about the different tiers being like, okay, well, what does my school think is important? A standalone seminary, which is where I teach at right now, the you know that teaches um, primarily pastors, activists, nonprofit organizers, etc., is going to be different than a larger university. It's going to be different than a private. A liberal arts college, all of them have their own kind of things that they consider to be legitimate. And so learning your institution while not, while also not losing your own voice in all of that is a real kind of practice of the day to day, at least for me. Mm -hmm. My, I I was just thinking, sorry, I don't want to say my, I was thinking,
2: but when you're talking about things that you're, when you're actually in the semester, like the curriculum building, literally just teaching a class. So you didn't go to school for education. So you didn't like really learn those things, but like, especially in undergrad, but can you talk about how you did learn those things? Like how you did learn to like build a curriculum? And I'm sure you had people around you, but mm-hmm. just, you know, get into those specifics of because you went through your undergrad, your masters and PhD that weren't related to education, like how you went about mm-hmm. learning those skills.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. One thing that I would honestly tell anyone, I tell a lot of my mentees this, Anyone who is trying to head into academia to be a professor is to find the center for teaching at your school mm-hmm. because most of the schools will have them or if they don't, whatever organization or grant space that you are connected to or your mentors are connected to, ask around, will have some type of teacher training. What happens is is that you are trained to be a scholar and then asked to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. It, those are not the same skill set. And so I right. was very blessed, very, very blessed in that, Vanderbilt has a really excellent center for teaching. And so I did a couple certifications around teaching in the humanities, teaching for college, how to build syllabi. And I also worked for them for three years. And so I spent all of my time reviewing people's lesson plans and across different disciplines, which really has served me well in the classroom. And I realized that's a unique gift. Mm-hmm. And so I tell people seek out teaching training because building a syllabus is hard, Figuring out what people are about to do for 15 weeks. <laughs> I'll get to week three and be like, "Ooh, y'all want more content? Yes, we're done. You're gonna figure yeah. out what, and then, to a time. yeah,
0: you also, and sometimes you have to add in like, so whatever the institution you work for. So let's say the last one I worked for was like, uh, a lot to do with sustainability and change and ethics. So then you also have to. Tie in. Sometimes they ask you to tie in specific things Mm -hmm. into whatever you're teaching. So, for example, you might get handed—probably not in your case—but okay, we're also about sustainability. How are you going to put that into your worship class?
1: It's like, (laughs) uh... (laughs) yeah. It's like, tell me more about what you would like for me. Or yeah, if the university is on some cap campaign or has whatever, they're like, so if you could just slide this in there. Now, the the interesting thing is for most professors, you have pre- pretty high autonomy over your classrooms, which is nice. You kind of, you know, show up and do what you want to do. And mm-hmm. as long as your reviews aren't some trash, you'll be OK. But you have to think about the stakeholders, too. and You're absolutely right. Like all of those things come into play and you're not a solo project. So what you teach is also connected to what everyone else on faculty is teaching. So you might show up in one role, but what we really need is someone to teach the one on one class. And you're like, but I'm a chemist. They're like, yeah, cool. Could you teach that freshman 101 <laughs> or no? <laughs> and so, yeah, there's some there's some negotiations uh, around your content sometimes. And then a funny
0: side tangent, because you were talking about going to your teaching center uh, and to try to understand like curriculum. I remember I took an undergrad. It was a dance pedagogy. And it was just basically <laughs> a class that teaches you how to teach dance. And I'm like, mm-hmm really think about a class that teaches you how to teach, but that you need it if you're right. going to teach it
1: something. But yes. you don't really think about that. Which no, is funny. I'm forever grateful for that class I took on syllabus building because I'm telling you, my syllabi would be some slaw. <laughs> really, they, would, they really <laughs> would are. And mine are still pretty bare bones. But yeah, it's just it is a it's a lot to think about. Like no one thinks about the fact that your professors are breaking down large books into smaller readings for you and mm-hmm. finding articles like the syllabus itself is a research project Mm -hmm. and then you watch it live out throughout the semester and then you grade it 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 really is a lot of um reflective and time-consuming work to be honest so i guess my next question
0: would be so what would be kind of your some advice you would give someone who they want to be professor i mean i imagine that it works in a way kind of how your experience was where you were in your master's program and you developed an interest and that's what kind of pivoted you into, I want to be a professor in this this field. What would you recommend people do if they're kind of in that in-between space of, I don't know if I want to become a professor or where should I know that I know I want to focus on the specific study? Like what kind of advice would you give someone?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I've, there are two ways I want to answer it. The first is I really don't think we talk about mentorship enough, and especially even as people are in middle school or high school, if there's someone like a teacher or someone that you know you feel connected to or you feel a coach, um, really talking to, with them about your interests, because a part of how I got to where I was was there were some mentors who heard my questions and mm-hmm. were like, "Girl, you want to answer them?" and I'm like, "Yeah, cool." Like, there's a way to do that <laughs> for a living. I'm like, oh, ew. And so I want to just, I don't ever want to shortcome the, like, the gift of the community and the village that helps you get to where you are. Um, and I think that that is one way. But as far as, like, the discernment and clarifying of, like, should I do this? Um, I have seen people get into PhD programs who just wanted a PhD. Mm-hmm. But didn't have a clear question um, or... Or even interest—it doesn't have to be a super, but interest in something—and it looks so miserable for them because the work is too hard not to actually care about it. And so, I—one of my things is: what are you actually passionate about? What, what actually gets you up? As much as like I will complain about the some of the uh, nuances and um, quirks of academia and being a scholar, I love studying what I study. I love reading about black women and activists and, th- and I could do it all day in real life and talking about it. And I think that that keeps me going through some of the stuff that's kind of whack and not fun. And so a PhD, yes, there's certainly intellect involved, but a lot of a PhD is about endurance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really about like, can I keep going through these different things? And if you hate what you're doing or you're not really that interested the fire that's pushing someone who's at least passionate about the topic is not going to serve you. And so my biggest invitation to people is being honest about what you care about and being honest about, is this a passion of mine? And if the answer is yes, then go for it. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. And I have a follow-up question to that too. So for anyone thinking to become a professor, do you have to get a PhD? Can you just stop at a master's program? And can you also shed a little bit of light of light into what a PhD program looks like? Because I don't think, um, well, we're gonna pretend like our our, ta- our target audience doesn't understand, but what an actual PhD program encompasses. Because some people just yeah. think it's like a master's program or an undergraduate program where you're sitting and you're kind of getting taught at, but there's a whole nother piece.
3: Yeah, I sure so did. Lol. Yeah. (laughs)
1: So So there are professors at different level. I know that there are some spaces where you can adjunct professor, which means you might teach a course, but you're not necessarily a full-time employee of the university or college or community college. There's so many different spaces you can teach in. Um, And I know that sometimes you can have a master's level, but for the most part, especially now that... um, Honestly, there are just some there are a lot more people that are getting PhDs in different areas that people are re- requiring a PhD to be a professor. And so I think that if you want to teach at the university level specifically, um, the PhD is probably the most secure route towards that. And then can you remind me of your second question? I know I laughed and then I forgot what it was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it was can you tell us about the uh, PhD program. How? What is that program like? Like, so, um, just give us your experience as to how many years is it? What's the rigor of it? What can people expect if they were to join a, a PhD program?
1: Yeah, so that's helpful. So, depending on the field, a couple of things. Depending on the field you're in, my field, religion, um, you do have to have a master's before you get a PhD. In a lot of the sciences, you don't have to have a master's, so a lot of people can go straight from undergrad into a PhD program. Um, history is not like that as well. So just doing some research on this on the area you wanna be in will give you some help about whether or not there's a middle ground between undergrad and PhD work. Um, there was for me the three year program. And so PhD programs tend to range from at the lowest around four years. Um I don't want to talk about the highest because it'd be high. Um, <laughs> I don't know how long it'll take to write. Um, my my program um was a six-year program and the way i count program numbers is basically a school will have like its intended structure for you now a lot of times when people get to a dissertation stage and i'm I'm about to walk through the stages so if you're unfamiliar with that i got you but when they get to that final dissertation stage it can just take longer so that's where folks can get it can get long but my program was a six-year program. And when I say six years, I talk about the fund, the amount of funding that they give me. So they gave me six years of funding. So I said, I'll give them six years of work. Mm-hmm. Everybody doesn't <laughs> have that. Everyone <laughs> has their own structures. Um, and yeah, as much as you can for PhDs, you really want to prioritize funded programs. Um, it's a long process. You're doing original work for the university. And so they should be they should be paying you Mm -hmm. to be there. I know every program is not funded, but a lot are. And so if we can prioritize that, I think it just creates a different peace of mind through the program. So the structure of the PhD program, for most kind of rhythms, it will change. Again, I'm in the humanities, so it will change a bit for the sciences. But the general stages are, you have coursework, which is the first stage. And coursework probably is going to feel most similarly to a master's program if folks have done a master's. It's like a master program, like on protein. It's just like a, lo- a little extra, a lot of extra work <laughs> and um, extra reading. So where you might've been reading a book a week, you might be being asked to read three a week where you might've been reading, mm-hmm. you know, a few articles. You me- might be being asked to read an article, a book, and then write something. And so it's intense wasn't my favorite stage personally but, but you know everyone has their favorite stage of the phd program mine was when i graduated um <laughs> and then the next stage is your exams there are two types of exams there are comprehensive exams or they're qualifying exams they both basically feel like the same thing but depending on what the institution qualifying is what it sounds like you are now qualified to write your dissertation comprehensive exams tend to be more about can you display that you have working knowledge of the entire field that you are in? And so exams in the humanities, um, which is the field that I'm in tend to be a lot more reading and writing. Um, Mine took about a year. I studied for eight months and then I sat for about 40 hours worth of testing, which was intense. Um, Mm. And I, Mm. yeah, I think, it's so wild I remember my book count which tells me you know there's still some healing to do there but it was 169 books and 74 articles um and so it's just intensive and so you're reading day in and day out and then for us I had five exams that were eight hours each that I took every other day for two weeks so I did a Monday Wednesday Friday and then a Tuesday Thursday and then I had to defend them orally the final the following week to my committee Basically being like, I promise you I read. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I said in that. I was delirious at that point. But we're here to tell the story. So we love that. Yeah. Um gosh. The gift Spark of exam. Though, <laughs> yeah, look. The gift <laughs> of the exam season, though, as much as it's intense, is that you really do get to know the field. Mm-hmm. Like there's information. If you ever think about your professors, right? And they would just like be like, Oh yeah, I think that's in this book. And you'd be like, why do you know that? Why yeah. do oh, get why <laughs> they know that? That's <laughs> that's so sweet. it's just like Burned into your brain. I'm sure I've lost some critical information that I need from other spaces of life, but it's just burned into your brain. I did the other day. I was like, yeah, I think that's on like page 115. My student was looking at me, and I was looking at her. Like, I know. I'm shocked too. Um, The next stage is your proposal stage, um, where you're proposing your dissertation, your big project, the thing you've been working towards, and so you have to write up a proposal and then send it to your committee that you will choose alongside your advisor. And then once they approve that, which can take anywhere from a couple of months to a year or however long, then you go into your dissertation. And that's the biggest, I don't say it's the biggest stage. I'll say that's the culminating stage um, where you write your project, your dissertation, which hopefully ends up being some good articles or your first book or whatever. It's your contribution to your field. And um, when you finish that and you defend that, uh, which is another process then you have your PhD. So it's lengthy, it's lengthy, and it can be pretty intense. Um, the sciences are a bit different, because there's a lot of collaboration and some lab work and mm-hmm. some different types of flows in there. But the kind of stage of class, exam, dissertation, publication is still fairly similar.
2: Mm-hmm. God bless you. Okay, but you did it, though. I mean, <laughs> you, you've been in school your whole life, basically, but... That's really awesome, huh? Oh, so anyone that's listening, I mean, you just heard what, what this takes, so it's not for the lighter light of heart. Um, is that a word? I don't know. We're gonna we're gonna say it's a word. But <laughs> I thought you like just made that <laughs> faint of heart. That's what it is. Who um my last question, and you kind of well, I mean, this is not necessarily about like being a professor, but it's about getting your PhD. But like, can you just Share how you went about choosing Vanderbilt for your PhD program. And you did mention, mm-hmm. like, you chose a, a program that was able to fund you. And can you talk about, like, I know it's a two part question, but can you talk also about how that usually works for a PhD
1: programs, yeah. like
2: paying for school?
1: 100%. So, different programs, different schools really will have different commitments um, to, for their PhD students. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I wanted to study, but I also knew that I was not interested in going into any more debt. I had some from undergrad already. And so I only applied to fully funded programs. Mm -hmm. And that was my choice. And so I decided if I get into a fully funded program, say less, I was going to go do some campus ministry work or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, for me personally, I felt like I just had some options and I was like, I don't, I just can't, I can't be stressed about paying for this. And so I applied to five programs. um, all were fully funded, which means you get um like you have no tuition expenses or activities, fees, et cetera. And you also get a, a living stipend. So Vanderbilt's was all tuition, and then we got twenty thousand dollars a year, which has now gone up. Welcome to inflation. But we got twenty thousand dollars a year on top of that, um to like help cover some living expenses. Mm-hmm. And so, um I was great, I was blessed to get some additional fellowships on top of that as well. And so most years ended up around with like a full tuition and forty thousand dollars to live off of. And so um if you can find a fully funded program, a lot of universities are going to be fully funded, but ask the question, call the admissions people to make sure that you're clear on what their funding packages are. Other programs will have scholarships and merit-based fully funded, and so you might, everyone might not be fully funded, but that doesn't mean you can't be. And Mm -hmm. so (laughs) you might have some scholarship programs and things of that sort. Um, And then there are also schools who work with grants, who work with grant agencies who can support different funds. And so my biggest around funding is ask all the questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting into a PhD program almost always requires an interview. So you'll have time to you know ask those questions and get the answers that you need but really asking questions about funding is really important and i chose vanderbilt for a couple of reasons um i was blessed to get into all of my programs and since they were all fully funded i had some other questions i needed to ask during the interview vanderbilt felt like a place i could stay for a while like i really enjoyed the people i'm an extrovert one of one of five in the academy just kidding let me stop. <laughs> but, uh, there's not many of us so um, Oh, not many of us at all. No, it's a very small cohort of extroverts in the academy. It was my advisor there was just like really boisterous and fun. And I really felt like I could work well with him um, as well as the rest of my department. And so I chose it because I wanted a place where I would also want to hang and what I would Mm -hmm. also want to enjoy um Vanderbilt also has a lot a lot a lot of resources and so it just felt like a good place and Nashville felt like a cool place to live and so I think one of the things that people don't always do when choosing a program is they'll choose either just the funding or they'll choose the advisor because you work so closely with mm-hmm. your advisor for so long which is different than in any other um kind of stage like your advisor really is like your forever homie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ideally mm-hmm. Um, and so choosing a good advisor is really helpful, but I knew I needed a social life. And so seeing, you know, is this a place I want to live for six years or is it a place I want to be for however long is a good question to ask yourself. To a
0: question and an encouragement, would you, I know anybody could do it if they wanted to, but would you encourage someone to just straight up? You know, I want to say this. But it's funny. It's like you've literally been in school from kindergarten. Would yep. you encourage people to just straight up just get it done while you can, or take a break in space? And then we'll answer that, and then I can go into my next part.
1: Okay. <laughs> I think that you know I've have had a lot of conversations with different colleagues about this because I'm one of the, probably the youngest mm-hmm. in my cohort because um, I went straight through. And I think that there are costs and benefits to all of it. I mean, I was clear on what I wanted to study. So where some of my other colleagues, for them, it was working in the workforce and then coming back to school that helped them. I also have always had a job. So people <laughs> like, often say, Judge, you've been in school for forever. And I'm like, yeah, I've also been in the workforce for forever. Mm-hmm. And so there's not been any year of my life that I haven't worked at least 70, you know, at least three quarter time. And so. Um, I think it's helpful for people not to think about school as a pause on your life, but as a part of your life. And so you're developing professional skills. You're developing the networks that I've been able to build throughout these institutions. Is it's still, it still continues to astound me, really, what different folks are doing? And so um, I think it's really about what resources do you have, what support do you have, um, and do you actually want to do you want to sit down and hanker down and do this work? Because the PhD program ain't ain't it. <laughs> I wish some, if someone had told me in advance how much it would shift and change me, I don't know that I would have hopped in so fast. But I'm so glad that I did. And so I just, I, I hope people will just trust their process. If you need to take a break, take a break. Academia will be here. Trust me, it's not going nowhere. People have tried to shut it down before, it's not going anywhere. But if you feel like you have enough energy and know what you want to study, go for it. Keep going through because now that I'm done at, Hold my I'm 32. <laughs> now that I'm done and I finished, I defended at 31. People are like, Oh, you're so young. You have so much time to be in this thing. I'm like, also, if I want to change careers in fifteen years, I can. Right. And I love that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and wherever I'm at, they're still gonna call me doctor. Okay, period. Yes. So I know that's it's right. Those,
3: right.
1: <laughs> it's just one of those things <laughs> where you can you really have to decide on your own trajectory. So I will oh, say I was true. I was very very tired at the end of my PhD and that's probably cuz I kept going mm-hmm. and it took me about a year to be untired <laughs> and so I wouldn't took like, pauses you know weren't quite as tired as me um but I still consider myself a student because mm-hmm. I do think it's weird that I'll never know life outside of semesters mm-hmm. but because people yeah. will be like, oh, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's just July. I'm like, no, it's summertime. Right. <laughs> it's vacation. <laughs> and so um, I have some gratitude for that and also know that that's a very particular way of being oriented to life.
3: Mm.
0: I think that's a perfect segue into what kind of what encouragement would you give to someone right now who's in their doctorate program? You know, it's the level of what they're going through. Can you just give some words of wisdom and encouragement just to help them power through?
1: Absolutely. I, this, my encouragement is for anyone considering or already in it, is your question is worth answering. And so, in the muddiness of all of the to do's and the muddiness of defenses and all of the extraness, like I hope that people will refine the delight in their question and in their research and in, um, the community that they feel accountable to. I, My work is always dedicated to amplifying Black women's voices that have been historically silenced. Mm-hmm. And so like when I remind myself of that, I get new energy, new renewed faith, new renewed excitement. And I have a great time studying it. And so just remembering your why, why you're doing it, and also finding some good friends and good collaborators, both in and beyond the academy, that can remind you of who you are when you forget... And can remind you of why you do what you do when it's hard for you to see it. It'll keep you going. And so, yeah, we look forward to seeing what work you put out. Because that, that's thats what we need is new, fresh ideas to help the world go around. That's awesome. Such an
0: educator. What is your why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it always comes in somewhere. From educators,
2: we're why. But it's true. <laughs> look, <laughs> it
3: that's what it's we true. do.
2: <laughs> well, because not knowing your why is costly. So time What's and financial... Um, but no, that was great. That was great. So if you're listening and you just heard Chelsea's encouragement, share it with your, with your PhD friends and other people too. So before we wrap up, I know you got other like ventures going on. So because Chelsea is absolutely an extrovert, she'd probably love to connect with anyone that's listening. So can you, can you, but no, this is great. I feel like she can give you a lot of wisdom for sure. Can you just share like how people can connect with you if you're fine with that? And also you have a business now. Can you talk about, can you share that too? So people can connect if they want to there too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you can connect with me on Instagram at, at underscore uh, Chelsea Brooke, I thought I was going to change it, but I didn't. So, at yeah. underscore Chelsea Brooke, C H E L S E A B R O O K E, or on my website, I am um where you can see a bunch of the things that I do. But at my core, I'm a coach. My hope is to help people. Um, through their different journeys and moments in life. So if you're getting married, I got you. If you need a preacher, I got you. (laughs) If you need someone to help you, coach you through some Enneagram work, which is a personality test, I got you. But really all of it kind of comes to one head of me journeying with you um, through life so that you can live more well, more whole, and more loved in this difficult world.
2: You're so cute. Okay, so... (laughs) I know, that was really good. That was like a, um elevator pitch for real. Oh, no, have you heard of snaps before? That was a good snap. Those are like your, like, basically elevator pitch. That was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how you can connect with Chelsea. I'm sure she'd be happy to connect for sure. I'd love to. Yeah. But no, thank you so much for, for being on here. We really enjoyed that just overview because, I mean, I think I knew, like, from talking to you and, like, you know, this has been, like you said, it's a long journey. And Kevin and I have been mm-hmm. a part of that, like in that little sliver of it or that long sliver of it but i feel like i didn't really know like the the meat of it so yeah that was good that was good for anybody i don't know if that's my my calling but that's somebody's calling out there um so mm-hmm. go for it go for it but yeah thank you chelsea so much for being on here with us we loved having you and Thank you all for listening. We appreciate it. If you heard this episode and you enjoyed it, or you know someone that's going through a doctoral program or educa- like just their educational journey in general, share it with them. I feel like this is a good insight into what it's like to be a professor, what it's like getting into academia, and anyone can, can listen to this. So definitely share it. There's other ways to share the podcast as well. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok at Podcast which is Y-A-W-S-Y-N podcast. Send us an email if you want to. We always we always say send us an email. We don't get a lot of emails, but we'd love to hear from you. So the email's in the show notes. Follow at us, please. And I think that's it. If you want to bless us financially, our Venmo's in the show notes as well. But we're always happy when people share and listen. So thank you all so much. And we'll see you next time. See you.
0: Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to the latest episode of Your Advisors. We'll see you now. Please make sure to follow us on all of our social media pages and check out our website. Take a look at the show notes below.
2: And please make sure to subscribe and share this podcast. Also, show us some love and please leave a five star review. Catch you next time. See ya.